The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's scripture reading is from Hosea 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I, brought, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be with you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, all right. It's good to be with you all. My name is Walker. I'm on staff here at Citizens. Uh, we're glad that you all are with us, that you have chosen to be here this, this evening. Uh, today is a special Sunday, as I'm sure you all are aware. It's Mother's Day. So we do want to take a moment to say happy Mother's Day to our moms. It's a big deal. Uh, yeah, we wanted to just say thank you for what you do in the lives of your children, for what you do in the broader life of our church. Uh, we really appreciate you, and we love you a lot, so thank you. Uh, we do want to acknowledge also that uh, for some of us, there's some sadness that comes with this day, whether it's you grieving your own mother, that she was not the mom that she thought she should have been, or that she maybe has left us too early, or maybe you desire to be a mother and you're wrestling with that dream being deferred, um, we're sorry. And we lament with you that that's not how it should be, uh, and we are sorry about that. Uh, so we are continuing in our little mini-series mini of standalone sermons called Greatest Hits. Garrison knocked out two great ones the last two weeks on John 3 and 4, and this evening we're going to do a little overview of the book of Hosea with most of our time spent in chapter 3. So if you want to flip there uh, while we pray here in a second, it's uh, in your blue Bibles. It should be on page 437. Uh, if you've got another Bible, it'll be right after the book of Daniel. So uh, I'll pray for us real quick, and then we'll jump in. Great God, we do praise you for uh, who you are, that you're God, that you're the cr creator God, that by your word you have spoken, and things have come into existence, and by your will you sustain uh, God, but yet you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and you have chosen to tell us about who you are through your word. So God, we pray that you would uh, show yourself to us in this place through your word tonight. God, may my words fall to the ground and not be remembered anymore, but God, may your word remain and may it change us. Spirit, we pray that you would do what only you can do in this place and change our hearts. We love you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So to begin, I want to ask you a question. Before I ask, I promise that you're not going to be graded. Nobody's going to ask you about uh, your answer. But I want you to think about this question. I want you to think longer than just a second. The question is, are you convinced God loves you? Are you convinced that God loves you? 
Now, I would imagine that uh, in a room like this with a group like ours, there's a range of answers, but there's probably three that stand out the most. The first is a quick, confident yes. Yes, I'm convinced. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And that's awesome. Praise the Lord that you're confident in that. The second is maybe a, a little more introspective no. I'm not convinced. Your mind maybe ran to all the things that make you unlovable. The natural follow-up question to your no is, how could God love somebody like me? Maybe the, the third group is somewhere in the middle. It's a, a questioning maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. The, the idea of a, of a loving God may be new to you. It may be a different concept than what you were taught growing up that uh, an all-powerful God can also be loving. That might be a new or different concept. I think our passage tonight speaks to each one of those groups. To the first one, the confident guesses, our passage will be the proof in the pudding. It will be this bedrock text that you can turn to when you struggle, when you suffer, or when old sins rear their ugly head. This, our passage, will be a place that you can turn to for refuge. To the introspective nose, this passage is going to challenge some of your assumptions about yourself. It's also going to challenge some of your assumptions about God. Maybe better than that, this passage is going to be like a really cool drink of water when your throat is so dry that it feels like it's cracking. It's going to be relieving. This passage is going to be relief for you. For the questioning maybes, this, this passage is, might reshape the way you view God and the way he relates to his people. The God who by his word created and by his will sustains actually deeply loves you. So the passage that we just read was Hosea chapter 3, but we need to do a little bit of background work to get us there. And, and I do want to warn you, this, this story is a little PG-13. It's going to be in your face. There's going to be some, some tough details to grapple with. It can be hard to listen to, but I think it's one that we must listen to. In fact, I, I would suggest that your depth and understanding of the gospel is directly related to your depth and understanding of this story of Hosea. So in chapter 1, we are introduced to Hosea. He's a prophet of God. Now, prophets during the Old Testament times, they were sent out by God. They were commissioned by God to take a message to the people. And often, it was a message of repentance. Hey, you people have rebelled. We need you to repent. I need you. I, God, need you to repent and come back to me. So it wasn't always the most fun job. It wasn't always the most successful job trying to go and talk to stubborn people and getting them to come back to God. But it was a really noble job. So Hosea is one of those prophets, and he's sent into the fray of the sin and the rebellion and the idolatry of Israel, really at their peak idolatry, at their peak rebellion, to call the people back. But his role is particularly unique because there's this extra layer added into it. Look at what we find in verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, when the, first, when, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So I warned you, little PG-13. Uh, so God's not pulling any punches. Right here. 
The spiritual condition of Israel is not great. And right from the jump, we get the picture of how bad it is. Israel's been unfaithful, and God tells Hosea that, hey, your marriage is going to be a representation of that. So Hosea, being a faithful man of God that he is, he goes and he marries a lady named Gomer, who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. They get married. They settle down. They have a family. And God actually takes it a step further. Not only is he going to use Hosea's marriage to point, to represent the spiritual condition of Israel, he's also going to use Hosea and Gomer's children. Listen to what God tells them to name their children. In verses 4 through 5 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Jezreel would be a reference, like we see here, to King Jehu, who massacres this family of 70 people in the valley of Jezreel. It's not a pretty sight. It's not for good, godly motives. It's for Jehu's own pride. It's for his own selfish greed. It's for his own lust that he does this. He's, he's a king, and he has the chance to turn God's people back to right worship of God. And instead, he perpetuates the idolatry of the people, and it's actually very self-focused what happens. So it's not, it's not great. Jump down to verse 6. It says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Again, not great. Jump to verses 8 through 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So it's gone from bad to really bad. Israel's spiritual condition was not just kind of bad, like sort of bad, like they kind of dabbled in sin, bad. It's, no, this is, this is terrible. And God's judgment of them is holistic. And if you keep reading, we'll jump into chapter 2, and it goes from really bad to worse. Remember how we said that Gomer is and will be unfaithful? Well, she's in, in chapter 2, she's gone back to her old ways. She leaves, she runs off, she goes back to her adultery and her prostitution. And chapter 2 is actually this rousing speech from faithful Hosea, the faithful husband that he is, trying to call his bride back. And it's almost, there's a little bit of irony, because it's almost like he's using the children to argue with his wife. He's talking to his children, asking them to make a case to his wife, which is probably bad form on Mother's Day. But look at what verse 2 of chapter 2 says. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from bet between her breasts. So he's passionately pleading for Gomer to return. And as Hosea continues, we get more and more details about how bad Gomer's condition is. We see in verse 5 that Gomer has gone to live with her lovers. And says, for she says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and flax, my oil and my drink. So the pleasures and comfort of her sin, the pleasures and comfort of her lust have actually mattered more to her than the call to faithfulness to her husband. And she dives headfirst into her sin. 
thinking that it will satisfy, but it only pulls her deeper and deeper down. We actually find out that a couple verses later that it's that as, as Hosea hears about how bad the conditions are that Gomer's living in, that she's living these, these squalid conditions, that she's, she's wanting for the bare necessities of life, that he actually is the one who takes the bread, the water, the wool, the flax, the drink, and he puts them in the house of her lover. She doesn't know it, and the lover just pawns them off as his own. Hosea is providing for his wife even in the midst of her rebellion. And the longer you read in chapter 2, two things become really apparent. The first, Gomer's in dire straits. Her sin is pulling her deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it is not a pretty sight. And two, Hosea's heart is broken. He is torn up over the state of his marriage and how his bride is suffering because of her sin. Despite all of that, we end chapter 2 with a little glimmer of hope. The trend of the story has been down, 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 down. And right here, all of a sudden, there's this little glimpse. There's this little peak. Maybe things might get better. Look at verses 21 through 23. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So these are sweet words. They sound really good. This is a promise that can give us a little, a little bit of hope. But is there, gonna be, is there actually going to be resolution? It's one thing to talk the talk. It's a whole other thing to actually walk the walk. So this sets us up for what we find in chapter 3. So let's jump into verse 1 that we just read. Verse 1 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, that they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So God commands Hosea to go, to again, to love his wife. Despite all the ways that she has sinned against you, Hosea, despite all the ways that she has broken her marriage vows, despite all the ways that she has made you the scorn of the public, think about that for a second. This is a prophet of God who is commanded to marry a woman that everybody knows is going to be unfaithful to him. Like, think about the, the, the scorn and the disrepute that that would have brought him as a prophet. Would, would have made him laughable. Despite all that she's done to you, Hosea, go love her. And, and don't just marry her, but relentlessly pursue her. Despite all the ways that her actions might have marred people's view of you and your credibility, go again and love. You wonder what Hosea might have been thinking about in that moment? I think that word again gives us a little hint, right? Again, go again, go again. Surely Hosea would have been like, God, haven't I haven't I done this before? Haven't I been faithful enough? Like, how, how faithful do you want me to, how, how much do you want me to do this? How much do you want me to love? I, surely there's got to be a breaking point, right? A man can only handle so much. But faithful Hosea goes, and he loves again. Now we're going to come back to that last part that talks about Israel and God. I know there's probably some questions there, but just hang with me for a little bit. Let's look at verse 2. 
says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leafeck of barley. So Hosea goes, and he finds her, he buys her back. We're not really sure of all the details that's led to this moment. We don't really see exactly what has happened, but Gomer's being sold as a slave. Her sin has spiraled out of control, and her sin has gone from adultery to prostitution, and now she's a commodity. She's a good. She's being sold. She's being trafficked. She's an object. Her sin has drugged her to the deepest of the deep, to the bottom. In that day, a slave would be presented on the auction block and would be stripped entirely of their clothes so that the merchants could see what it is that they're buying. So it's, it's rock bottom. It's the moment of greatest shame, and it's Gomer's moment of greatest shame. So there she is. She's up on the auction block. She's stripped of her clothing. She's made a public mockery for all to see truly rock bottom. Her shoulders are stooped, carrying the weight of her guilt and shame. And her husband, faithful Hosea, is out in the crowd watching it all play out, watching his bride being treated as property. The auctioneer starts the bidding. Five shekels. Eight shekels. Ten shekels. She hears a voice, and it's a voice she remembers. The more she hears the voice, the more she recognizes whose it is. Could it really be him? What does he want from me? What does he see in me? Why is he here? Why is he trying to buy me back? How am I worthy? What is he doing? Why does he want me? Ten shekels, twelve shekels, fifteen shekels, fifteen shekels and a homer, fifteen shekels, a homer and a lethek of barley, going once, going twice, sold. Hosea steps into the marketplace to buy back his bride. Hosea acts on his love, and he pursues his bride. He goes, and he finds his bride, and he pays the price, and he brings her back. He brings her home, and he calls her his own. It was at this point of purchase that Hosea's love for Gomer burns the brightest. It should be noticed, noted, too, that 15 shekels a homer and a leafback of barley is not the common price for a slave like Gomer during this time. The common price for a slave like Gomer would have been 30 shekels. So why does Hosea offer this interesting mix to pay for her release? It's all he has. You could imagine him walking, searching, seeking for his bride, and he sees her up on the auction block. He reaches in his pockets, can't, can't find the money. He runs back to his house. He opens up the safe. He finds 15 shekels. Where's the rest? He looks under the mattress. He looks in between the cushions of the couch. He can't find it. He thinks, what else is worth 15 shekels? He runs out to his field. He grabs a homer. He grabs a lethek of barley, and he comes back. This, this could amount to 30 shekels, I think. He puts all his chips in. He gives all that he has to buy back his bride. Shocking. Like, we can't fathom this, what's happening here. But actually, what happens once he buys her back is equally, if not more, shocking. Look with me again at verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
Once Hosea buys Gomer back, he can do whatever he wants with her. He can hand her a certificate of divorce. He can send her away. He can enslave her. He can treat her as property. He can make her pay for all the wrong that she's done to him, for how she's broken her marriage vows, how she's brought on his disrepute to him as a prophet. He can make her pay, but he does just the opposite. Actually, he does more than the opposite. He comes to her, and he covers her nakedness. Like You can almost imagine her, like when he reaches out to cover her, she cringes because of the type of men that she's been around up until this point. But he stoops, and he speaks tenderly to her. He says, Gomer, I love you. I want to build a life with you. I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. I want to work at this. I don't want anybody or anything to get in the way of this. I want to rebuild our lives together. We're going to rekindle our love. We're going to work on this. You, you will be mine, and I will be yours. Hosea's love for his bride compels him to act, to pursue her, and buy his bride back. But also, his love for his bride seeks her redemption and seeks the redemption of their marriage. Hosea and Gomer, their story, their marriage, their love, it actually points to a greater spiritual reality at play here. Verses 4 through 5 bring those in, bring, brings that into focus for us. It actually points to us. It points to you. These verses put the ball in our court, so to speak. We got a little hint of it in that second part of verse 1 that I promised you we would come back for, and we get the rest of it in verses 4 through 5. It's almost as if God has one eye right here on Hosea and Gomer and their story playing out, and he's got one eye on you. So look with me again at verses 4 through 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So God's talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about his people. He's talking about us. He's talking about you. He's using the story of Hosea and Gomer to make a point to his people, to make a point to you. I think there's, there's three things that God wants us to see from the story, and we'll briefly unpack each. The first is that God loves you. Regardless of how you answered that question at the beginning, I'd invite you to hear this. God loves you. Yes, he loves the world. He loves his creation broadly. But this story shows us that God loves you specifically, uniquely. He loves you, full stop. So God uses Hosea to show his commitment to you again and again and again and again. God has gone, God is going, and God will go to love you. As you read the Bible, you'll start to see how marriage is like the ultimate metaphor that God uses to showcase how he relates to his people. He uses this binding marriage covenant to point to the greater reality of his commitment and his love for his people. God's, he's, God commits himself to his people, and he swears by himself to do it. Think about those marriage vows that you've heard as you've been to a wedding that a, a bride and a groom vow to one another. 
They say, I, husband, take you wife to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. What you're saying there is that come hell or high water, I am loving you. I am pursuing you. I am fighting for you. Whether we live in the best house, in the best neighborhood, or we don't have two nickels to rub together. Whether we live until we're 100 years old, or if one of us gets really sick and has to battle severe illness for years on end, whether we have a great life and all of our dreams that we've ever dreamt come true, or we have heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. As long as we're living, I am pursuing you. I am loving you. I am fighting for you. That's what these vows mean. And these vows point us to the commitment that God has to his people, to the commitment that Jesus has for his church, to the commitment that God has for you. Hosea upholding his marriage vows to his bride is the proof that God loves you. God will go again and again and again and again to love you. This is a grounding reality for us. When when the doubts creep in, you begin to ask, does God really love me? Let Hosea be a reminder. Let it be the proof. Let it be the proof that God loves you. When suffering comes and you question how a good God, a good loving God can let this happen to you, you start to ask those kinds of questions. Let Hosea be a reminder that God loves you and that he's good. If you've never considered the character of God and how he relates to his people, let Hosea be a model for you, pointing you to Jesus's love for you. But the good thing for us is that God's love doesn't just stay at an intellectual level. It's not just an idea that sounds good, that makes our hearts warm. It actually, God's love compels him to act. So secondly, God pursues you. God gives us the visual of how Hosea pursues his bride and buys her back to point us to the way that he pursues us. We are Gomer. We've sinned. And it's not just this dip your toe in the water kind of sin. We've plunged headfirst into sin. We're dominated by it. We're consumed by it. Sin is in us and of us and on us. We're totally dominated by sin. Think about in the moment when you're tempted to sin. Sometimes it's like, gosh, how could I imagine my life without doing this? Like you almost feel incomplete without it. Anything from like the smallest ounce of bitterness towards a friend to the greatest act of unfaithfulness or infidelity that you could imagine. It's all really enticing and really gripping in the moment. But you get to the end of it, it doesn't satisfy. Actually, you feel worse than you did before. Maybe most significantly, though, our sin is rebellion against God. We've turned our backs on him. We spit in his face. We've rejected him. We've chosen lesser idols. Because of that, our our sin brings guilt and shame. And we end up on the auction block like Gomer. Except this is the marketplace of sin and death. And we are slaves to our sin. But God proves his love for us and how he pursues us. 
God's love for you is, is, is scandalous. Hosea's love for Gomer is scandalous. God's love for you is even more scandalous than that. He created us, yet we rebelled. We have brought disrepute on his name. We are Gomer, yet God's love for you compels him to pursue you. God steps in to buy us back, to buy you back, but it costs him more than 15 shekels, a homer, and a lethet of barley. It costs him his son. It costs him Jesus Christ. But like Hosea, God puts all his chips in. He said, I'm going to give you the most precious thing that I have. I'm going to give you all that I am. I'm going to give you my son, Jesus. And Jesus willingly goes to the cross because he loves you. Jesus willingly goes to the cross because he knows it's the will of the Father. Jesus goes to the cross because he knows that he is the only thing, the only ransom that could bring you home. He goes to the cross because he's the only way to buy you back. The only price that would satisfy sins against an all-powerful creator God is God himself and Jesus. The Bible says that the price due for sin is death. So somebody has to die. Either you or somebody in your place. You're on the auction block. But Jesus steps in. He says, I'll pay the price. My body, my blood, my life, I'll do it. Many of us have wrestled and, or, or might wrestle or will continue to wrestle with the kinds of internal dialogue questions that Gomer has when she's up on the auction block. What does God see in me? How am I worth it? How could he love me? With my sin history and sin patterns, there's no way God could love me. Even if you were one of the ones who answered a confident yes to the question at the beginning, inevitably these questions will arise. When they do, remember this story. Let Hosea point you to Jesus, the one who does pursue you, the one who enters into the marketplace, the one who buys you out of your slavery to sin and brings you into freedom in life with him. When he purchases us, though, It's more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus buys us back that we might be redeemed. That what Hosea says to Gomer in verse 3 might be true for us as well. Last but not least, God redeems you. When God buys us back, we are bought out of our bondage, out of our slavery to sin, into freedom found in Christ. God is a redemptive and a restorative God. He wants his people to be made whole. He wants restoration for you. But this is not just some snap your fingers kind of redemption. He wants every fiber of your being to be redeemed back to him. He wants every wayward thought, every sinful act, every evil word to be redeemed back to him. He wants your first thought in the morning when you get out of bed and you can't fathom that this is the lot that God has given you and you dread getting up. He wants that thought to be redeemed. He wants your late night internet surfing where you push the boundaries of what is good to be redeemed. He wants the way that you treat your spouse or your roommate at your moment of greatest impatience to be redeemed. He wants the way that you act when you're not at a church function to be redeemed. He wants every fiber of your being 
He wants to convince you that he is better than the world's best thing. The good news of verse 3 is that God has promised you, himself to you in this redemption. He doesn't just pursue you in love and buy you back in love to leave you alone. He doesn't just buy you, buy you back to then treat you as a slave. He doesn't buy you back to then make you pay for all the ways that you sinned against him. Yes, his love becomes real in a moment in our salvation, but he has promised to love us in the same way over a lifetime. He has said, I will be your God. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. We're going to work on this. We're going to build a life together. He wants to convince us over a lifetime that he is better than the world's best thing. Life with Jesus is sweeter and richer and more fulfilling than anything else. This is what sanctification looks like. He, he gives us the gift of himself in and through the person and work of the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the truths of the gospel, who convicts us of our sins when we have these wayward thoughts or sinful acts or evil words. He is the one who brings us back to the truth of the gospel. He is the one that reminds us, no, 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 your identity is no longer sinner, it is son it is daughter, you are welcomed, you can return. It is our joy to come back because he has welcomed us. He has shown himself to be loving and faithful and good in and through Jesus. So now it's our joy to repent. We, we get to repent because he has brought us back and that's what he wants to do to make us whole. We, we get to repent because he loves us. It's part of him shaping us into who he has called us to be. Some of us, I think, need to, get, need, need to have our review, our orientation about repentance worked on a little bit. We view repentance as a burden. For some of us, it's let me grit my teeth and faith harder and make myself acceptable, make myself good enough before God in and through my repentance. But this passage shows us that when we sin, when we choose the lesser things, when we turn our backs on God, we are invited, we are welcomed, we get to return. We don't have to repent to get into the kingdom. Instead, God buys us back in Christ so that we might repent. All of this is because of the work of the Spirit. God gives us himself in the person and work of the Spirit who works in us, and he is the down payment for the fullness of our redemption to be found in glory. But he's working in the here and now, bit by bit, inch by inch, to redeem you back into the person that God has called you to be. Ephesians 3, um, Paul prays that believers, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This story of Hosea helps us catch a glimpse of what Paul is praying for. The way Hosea loves Gomer, the way Hosea pursues Gomer, the way Hosea redeems Gomer is shocking. It shows us the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Hosea's love for his bride. It surpasses knowledge. It's unfathomable to think that a husband could do this, would do this. But it's just a sliver. 
of how God loves you. It's just a sliver of how God loves you. How much more is God's love for you in Jesus Christ unfathomable? Does it surpass knowledge? Is it unthinkable? How much deeper, how much longer, how much fuller, how much higher is the love of God for you in Jesus Christ? Jesus who is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. Pray with me. God, we praise you that despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite the ways that we've turned our backs and chosen lesser idols, God, you love us. Call us back to yourself. Use you, God, step in to the marketplace and you buy us out of our slavery to our sin. You bring us into freedom in Christ. Jesus, we praise you that you willingly went to the cross for us, that we might be brought from death to life, that we might be brought from bondage to sin into freedom found in you. And God, we praise you for how you want to redeem us, how you continue to remind us of the good news of the gospel, of what our identity is in Christ. It is son, it is daughter, and it is settled. We praise you for the gift of the Spirit who reminds us of these things. God, you are good. We pray that you would keep us mindful of these things. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.